I don't do an actual interview. I just kind of start with some questions, and then we just start talking. And if it slows down, I refer to my questions. I've actually got yeah. – I wrote the questions as I read it. comes out to about 43 questions, which we are not going to get through. I, I do not plan to do that. It's just for coverage. I have ancient okay. stories, crashing meteorites, antecedents to modern ideas, contactees, religious denominations, and alien beliefs, racist ideas, channeling sky ships, and ancient aliens. So those are sounds the... sounds fun. <laughs> okay, sounds trippy. Yeah. yeah, well, it is. The book is. It's amazing. This is the intro I wrote. Chris Abeck's previous book, uh, co-authored with Jacques Vallée, is entitled "Wonders in the Sky," published in 2010. It was a comprehensive examination of aerial phenomena reports from antiquity antiquity to the year 1879. His new title is "Alien Artifacts from Antiquity Antiquity to the Year 1880." The Forgotten Story of How We Came to Believe in Visitors from the Stars, which I loved. The book describes a long and intricate history of ideas about extraterrestrial worlds and their inhabitants, mostly in Western civilization. There's some examples from outside of it. The examples stretch back to ancient Greece and include the first speculations on the origins of the ancient alien theory, the first ideas of extraterrestrial craft, original accounts of what we would know today as flying saucer contactees, and even the racist origins about superior beings. Um, Chris says he's been told that his research, and I like this quote, is like drawing back a curtain to reveal a long-forgotten history of an obsession we thought of as new. Uh, thanks for being here, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Hey, who? What? Get your hands up! Tell where you are. Don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. What's Greg? <laughs> in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Ah, uh, the famous intro. Uh, Chris, are you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Oh, excellent. Hi. Let me turn this down so we don't get an echo. Are you still living in Spain? Yeah, I've been here for 31 years now, which is um, longer than than it seemed possible when I arrived. And uh, I don't even feel 31 years old. How is this possible, man? I, I must have fallen into a time warp. But yeah, I came to Spain. On the 4th of March, 1991, and uh, I've been here ever, ever since. I'm living in a, in a small town now in the, in the center of Spain, sort of 
heading north, sorry, heading south, that is. Mm. It's extremely hot in the summer. It gets to about 46 degrees mm. um, Celsius. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, it moots, It sort of melts my boots off. But I like it. It's, um, it's nice. It's medieval. It's very peaceful and um, very cheap to live in in this post-pandemic world, which is what I was looking for. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's about how long I've been in Los Angeles. Don't uh, no, not Los, I've I've been in my house here that I'm at now in Los Angeles for the almost exactly the same amount of time. Okay. So yeah, I'm right. I'm right in the middle of a large urban area. It's, it's it sounds like a lot more <laughs> relaxing, and probably the uh, food is better there. Well, the food's good here if you look for it, but I think countries like mm-hmm. Spain people consider these things important, so you can't get a bad meal. Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that uh, last Saturday I was at a party, mm-hmm. and it lasted about twelve hours. And like <laughs> of course, thirty of us, um, and they were they were uh, sort of cooking food on, on an open fire, and there were horses and bulls and things wandering around outside in the middle of the countryside. There were, um, they told me that there was going to be a flamenco group, and it was uh, it was more or less that. It was two old men and a guitar, and they and they sang flamenco and played for about eight or nine hours. And then you really feel you're living in Spain, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's, a be- it's a beautiful feeling. And I've just come back from, from Madrid, where, where you don't get that. This is much more rural and uh, authentic. Yeah, I've only been to um, Madrid and um, Toledo, and I think, yeah, that's it. That's the only places I remember visiting in Spain. I think I was there once, Mm. maybe twice. (laughs) So I'd like to go back. Maybe I'll come back and um, uh, come by and bother you. Yeah. Um, So I think people know that I I get – what was your original – interest in ufo stuff because i know you've had sightings in the last what during your adult life but that's not where the interest started was it no not really no um it started when i was about 13 14 years old i used to um what we call in english to bunk off school sky of school to skip classes yep uh, to to sit in the university library uh, and research um, ancient mythology when I was about 14, 13, 14, 15. Uh, I was looking for creation legends. I was looking for mm. um, maybe some old universal religion that the whole of humanity shared. I mean, these were my early teenage uh, thoughts on 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 history, evolution, and and mythology. But it was um, a time when I used to look into old books on folklore, on fairies, uh, old um, like uh, Mesopotamian legends and so on. And I realized that a lot of the, the stories resembled uh, the science fiction that also um, was a passion of mine at the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought there must be a reason for that. And I started looking into it and um, I just became more and more fascinated by it. Then I fell into the whole ancient astronauts thing, which was like a, a bridge between uh, the ancient world and the modern, I suppose. And it just um, it just sort of span out from there. And, and uh, over the years, uh, yeah, I, I had a, a sighting in 1996. And... Uh, I've become very interested in the whole history of the of the topic. I think it's 
it's fascinating. So it's something I've I've had with me for the last uh, forty years or so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I started reading books in the library when I was a kid, and it was all the paranormal books and UFO books mm-hmm. and Bigfoot yeah. and all that. So yeah, similar. Um, I did. If people read your book, which they should, um, there is a great deal of skepticism uh, um, expressed about the history of some of these channeled worlds and races and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted to let people know, to make it clear. It's like you you do think there is a, a core phenomenon going on. It's just it's covered up with so much human um, expectation and all that, which you kind of, you know, that's basically the theme of the book, that it's kind of hard to figure out what it is. Um, mm-hmm. is, is that accurate? Yeah, it's a little bit like if um, if you ask somebody about life in medieval times, uh, a lot of people would talk about knights in shining armor, King Arthur. They might even get into dragons and Merlin and, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But if you if you really study um, early medieval um, history and, and literature, you find that um, there's a lot more literature than than factual content from the from the period, um, at least written down. So what what happens in UFOs is a very similar thing. It's very difficult to get a clear idea about what the past was like, because we've read so much into it based on our own. Um, our own expectations, as you said, of, uh, you know, which, which have come from cinema, uh, reading other things, um, TV series, cartoons. And it's, um, it's very difficult to get to this kernel of truth, to get to, to ufology stripped of its folklore, stripped down naked in a sense, back to, back to how it all began, where it came from. And of course, uh, the book, what it tries to do is show how we've gone wrong in a sense. Uh, it's a reassessment of, of ufology and its roots and, and how we've created our own stories uh, around it. And my idea is that if you, if you start taking away what, is, what was obviously invented at some point, um, then we might get closer to the truth behind the phenomenon. And it, this is very rarely done in ufology so i took it as a on as a challenge and i think i've i'm getting there i'm sort of approaching my my goal and this is the first volume yeah and it really does um kind of what what i said at the beginning that quote about a long forgotten history of an obsession we thought was new um you look at these stories and um i mean the, the main point of the book is this none of this is new all I can't think of anything in the book where I'd said, oh, well, that's something people are talking about right now in a different form. Um, even going back to uh, the very first speculations about uh, people on other planets or other parts of the universe, which I did not realize at first was from ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. That's right. Atomism. It's, um, it, it, atomism was, was um, a f- philosophical system and at the same time a very scientific idea. The idea that um, all, all material, all matter consists of, of atoms. And it's such a modern sounding, wonderful uh, concept, which mm-hmm. of course we know is true today. But the Greeks had no way of proving it. So they—I mean—they didn't have mic- uh, microscopes. They had no, no possible scientific experiment to to show whether that was right or not. And of course, the theory was abandoned quite early on. But 
part of that theory um, was that um, perhaps in a perfect universe, um, the same swirling clouds of atoms would create the same kinds of material uh, everywhere throughout the cosmos. And that's why, uh, according to the Greeks, uh, you'll find um, Earth replicated maybe an infinite number of times with its its flora and fauna and people and so on. And of course, that is that is a belief in extraterrestrial life. So um, atomism opened that that door to a whole new concept of the universe. And unfortunately, as I said, there was no way to prove that atoms actually existed. So. It was it was uh, abandoned in the end as a as a theory, but um, what a, a wonderful advanced theory it was. Yeah, and it was uh, just based on I guess intuition and reason. It wasn't based on anything that they could actually find out. It was just um, it sounds like it's like well, if this exists here, it can exist other places. Um, yeah, in the heavens. Um, well, speaking of ancient Greece, there's I I thought there were I think two. Two stories I remember um, from, there was one from ancient China, I believe, and there was one from Japan, I guess from the, mm. what, 16th or 15th century, something like that. Ku Are you talking about the, the bamboo cutter? Yeah, Kaguya-hime. That's right. Well, that's actually 10th century. Oh, wow, even earlier. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's pretty amazing because, well, I mean, it's the, it's the story of, um, of a farmer who comes across uh, a, a stalk of, um, of, of corn and, you know, inside it, he finds a tiny, tiny person, like a, a baby practically, but even smaller. Well, it is a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And so he takes uh, this, this tiny being home and um, she grows up to be um, one of the most beautiful women in China. And uh, then the emperor falls in love with her and uh, everyone falls in love with her. But she, she doesn't reveal her true origins until they, they, they start paying her so much attention that um, everyone wants to marry her. She starts to warn, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the moon at some point. Um, they're going to come for me. Um, my my family is going to come here, rescue me, take me back again, and and I'll be gone. I'm very sorry. I can't marry anyone on this planet, and of course that's what happens in the story. And it's amazing because the way that it's described, it could be modern science fiction. I mean, it's 1,200 years old or more. I mean, it could be it could be much older than that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're you're seeing the um, beings from the moon fighting um, uh, Chinese armies. Oh, was um, it Chinese using... not Japanese? Oh, sorry, I said I said Chinese. I mean, I mean Japanese. And okay. it was they were using concentrated um, light beams and everything. I mean, it sounds very much uh, like like lasers. Uh, they sort of arrived in in flying chariot. So you have there the this sort of war between between uh, the lunar people and 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 Earth people, and it's basically a, almost a cosmic battle, you know. And uh, in the end, um, the the lunar dwellers win, and they and they go back to the moon with with the girl, and that's the end of it. But to think that it's over a thousand years old, there's there's nothing comparable in in European um, literature. It just shows that people were able to 
imagine these things, uh, that these things were within their imaginative grasp at a time when no one normally would imagine that that that, that, that would be possible. You know, I mean, if, if I spoke to, to most people today, they'd probably say that that kind of, or that level of science fiction had been born in the 19th century, maybe even 20th century. But mm -hmm. no, there we have it. We have Star Wars from over a thousand years ago. <laughs> Yeah, and I think another part of the story is that she said that they would they would influence people so that they couldn't fight back. And what I think what the story was is everybody's so dumbfounded that they can't do anything. And in the ones that can, the the arrows or whatever were bouncing off the bouncing mm -hmm. off the armies from the moon or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They sort of glance off in in all directions, and everyone's just like watching, stupefied, at, uh, you know, at, at how this this combat's taking place, and nobody can believe that these people from the moon have such advanced technology. You know, it just seems impossible, but there it is. Yeah, and it's a fictional story. I mean, I think it's presented as a fictional story or a tale or something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's um, it's a it's a traditional uh, tale. It's a traditional story which has been turned into uh, movies, TV series, and there was a beautiful cartoon uh, made in Japan um, about maybe twenty years ago now, and it's for children. And there you have like the further adventures of Kaguya Hime. And uh, you can see how how the the fight takes place between her her lunar family and, and mortals. But it, then it goes into other stories and other details. So it's not simply an obscure folk tale. It's it's actually a part of Japanese culture. Now I got to look it up on YouTube or somewhere and see if I can see any of the any of the shows. Mm -hmm. I guess I can just type in the the the. Um... The name Kaguyahime, or yeah, um, it translated exactly. into you know hiragana or something like that, and pump, pump that mm -hmm. in and see if that that'll come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll find quite a lot about it, and very nice, uh, very beautiful um, paintings, uh, and you know, uh, artwork that uh, some of which is three, four hundred years old. The, there's a lot of it. You you might need to to translate some sentences into Japanese to get to get the real stuff. But, yeah, um, I found that by looking for UFO-type reports from Japan, which I was doing for a little while. Right. There is a lot out there. You just need to, you know, you need to dig a little bit. But these days with Google Translate and Deeple, mm -hmm. uh, you can get, you, you can perform miracles online and, and get the most obscure and interesting uh, literature and stories and sightings. Mm -hmm. things that we we never imagined were out there yeah because i i you know I, I looked at the book and a lot of the stuff turned out to be hoaxes or mm -hmm. bad retellings and even in the case of john keel who repeated something which he either didn't bother to check out there was no real way for him to check it out but um, a lot of these accounts turn out to be just stories people made up but they're told as um, factual stories and then those get yep. retold and retold but it's uh, when you say that about the internet, um, I think um, you know where did you find this information? Did you go into <clears throat> was it internet research or actual research in archives or both? I guess it'd be both. Oh, yeah, both. But it it did start a very long time ago. I mean, um, in the in the acknowledgments, I do mention that I probably began this project around the year two thousand and two. Mm -hmm. I used to go to every 
library I could find in in London and then in Spain and then when I was when I was in the states in uh, the early 1990s too uh, and just trying to to get as much of it as I could quite randomly of course because one of the reasons why this hadn't been done before why the, why this book is so unique is that it it ha- it, it was never possible before to, to to bring all this information together it was so scattered so uh, I've I've found notes from when I was uh, 17 years old 16 years old um things that uh, people sent me through the post in the in the late 80s early 90s when I was just a, a teenager uh, then as as time went on and uh, we will experience this f- fantastic explosion of, of new sources of digitalized libraries and so on it just made the task a lot easier it, the problem too with that is that it it also forced me to reconsider a lot of what I thought I knew because uh, such a colossal amount of information as we have today in Google Books, newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com that have literally hundreds of millions of newspaper pages to 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 just look through you know with just the click of a of a button you can you can find exactly what you want and things that you didn't imagine were there it it does make the process more complicated because suddenly you you're you're faced with not 10 or 12 cases you're faced with thousands hmm. of new sightings thousands of new um fragments of people talking about life on other planets life coming to earth it's just enormous and and of course too i also invested a lot of money in books over the years so yeah it comes from it comes from all over yeah i i've uh i've done some of the same kind of research not to the depth you have but it's kind of amazing where you trade because you bring up these i will continue with the, this other thread that i was going to in a minute but you 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 will tell a story like the one like the your favorite one the one from ohio with the with the <laughs> probably the man in black and the and the um, mm-hmm. coach um the the noiseless coach and uh but you first read it and it sounds like something you'd read in a john keel book or something that you'd just see as a, a you know a, as a sighting now and mm-hmm. then you go into it and you find out that these people existed, but they, you know, and some of these other ones, you find out that people never even existed. Mm-hmm. But you find out that people yeah. existed, but the only source is just this one person uh-huh. who That's probably right. just used their names and that was it. Um, so how often does that happen? How many of these things can you not trace down? And how many of them, like like you said in the book, they sound like great stories and suddenly you find out what the etymology or the history of each story is and how strange it got and how people would copy it verbatim or they would change things or they change the names or whatever. Is this common? I, it seems pretty common the way you describe it in the book. Yeah, yeah, it's it's extremely common because there was a massive uh, boom in the number of newspapers uh, that could be bought in the 19th century. And we're talking about um, tens of thousands of, of newspaper titles. And that's just in the English language. There's a, there, there's a whole world of, of German newspapers that I haven't been able to, to read yet. I'm just waiting for technology to catch up with me. And um, of course, Spanish newspapers also published in America. Uh, it's just enormous. And the problem was that we with with new literacy 
um, there was a new competition. People people competed to sell um, as many newspapers as possible, which meant that they, as soon as a, a topic uh, became trending, uh, like um, meteorites or um, strange lights and monsters in the forests and so on, uh, then every local newspaper had to say, well, we, we've seen one too. Uh, there's one, <laughs> you know, w wandering around here. Or my grandfather saw lights over on that hill. And some of the time it was true, and some of the time it, it wasn't true. But there, there was so many um, reports of this kind that if, if they were all true, I mean, we're talking about uh, an amazing Fortean landscape. That, mm -hmm. that, that's what the 19th century would have been. It would have been like something from Harry Potter and a horror film combined. <laughs> obviously, they're, they're not all true, obviously. Mm -hmm. so, uh, but, 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 but some of them are. And what I decided to do was, uh, instead of just ignoring those which were um, hoaxes or suspected to be hoaxes, I decided to put absolutely everything in the book because the only way that you can see the evolution of ufology is by is by including the hoaxes. I mean, you if it's a hoax, you, you say so. You tell people this is a hoax. But then you also go into why that happened, how this came about, what is the sociological context here? What, um, you know, why did people even imagine that, that someone would believe that this was true? Um, it's it's very important to do that. I, I've I've bought books before about um, UFO crashes, mm -hmm. and um, they have whole catalogs there, and they say, well, we, we we've taken out the ones that we know uh, were fake, and that's fine. I mean, you're you're left with a list of nice uh, nice cases, um, but you're also missing something. You're missing a lot of missing links there. Uh, there are a lot of uh, stories which uh, maybe they're fiction, but they inspired somebody to, to create the next piece of fiction or they convinced someone enough for them, for them to go out and say, oh, well, I, I think I'm seeing what was described in the newspaper yesterday. It's very important to, to, to get all of it. It has to be very thorough and very inclusive if you want to show how, how the topic of UFOs um, developed over the last 200 years. So, yeah, there is a lot of, um, there, there was a lot of hoaxing going on, as there is today. But also, just as is the case today, that doesn't negate the existence of UFOs. It just means that we have to be more careful. Yeah, when a, when a hoax through the happens, thicket. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, when a hoax happens or when a, a Netflix show um, appears on TV with some new ideas, new stories, new sort of plot. If if you find that later in in impersonal testimonies and sightings, you've got to start wondering how that happened. How did it jump from fiction into into the allegedly real world? You need to take it all in. You need to to mm -hmm. become an expert both on in fiction and in in actual sighting reports. So um, this but this first volume, because I, I, I plan to make three, mm -hmm. um, just contains everything. And then when I get to after 1880, it just opens the floodgates. The, the number of, of cases is extraordinary. And there's no way to know which are true and which aren't sometimes. But it's all fascinating stuff. So yeah, uh, newspapers published a bit of everything and we need to pay attention to all of it. Yeah, as you're talking about this, and you did mention it, that um, elements from fiction and from other stories and from um, uh, hoaxes and all that, 
can enter actual accounts because people either want to make it sound good or they confabulate it because they're trying to explain something and those ideas just jump into their minds or whatever. And sort of, uh, as I said, clear, you know, clearing out the thicket of all this other stuff, you know, what are we left with? And um, I think at the end of these three volumes, we'll have a little bit a better idea of what we're left with and hopefully people will pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did talk about uh, that uh, Japanese story from the 10th century or before. Um, and you said that Europe was a bit behind in that. So uh, what would you say the first science fiction fiction story featuring aliens was written? Well, um, if we look at uh, 15th century, 16th century uh, literature, we see a lot of um, Spanish and French uh, stories uh, talking about life on the moon. I mean, the moon was the favorite planet at that, at that point. So, yeah, that was um, one of my find... questions, actually. <laughs> yeah, Why so the moon? Probably because it's right there. <laughs> Well, there are, there are different reasons for this. Uh, partly it's because in the Aristotelian um, um, cosmological worldview, uh, it wasn't possible to have life on other planets because, plights, uh, because planets weren't exactly solid objects hanging in space. They were lights. They were they were phenomena, but they weren't really sort of planets in the, in the sense that that Earth is. The only the only other solid object that was considered to be mm. solid was was the Moon. So uh, aliens from space very naturally came uh, from the Moon. Apart from the fact it's something that we can see. I mean, planets and stars will look very similar, particularly to yeah. um, to medieval and Renaissance yeah, people without uh, telescopes. <laughs> and without glasses. Mm, I mean, yeah. uh, I, I bought glasses last week, and uh, it's amazing how many stars I can see. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. Before that, I was like thinking, why don't I see stars these days, you know? So the moon is a little bit different, plus the fact that there, are all, there, there was already a lot of folklore about, about the moon, about, you know, the man in the moon, faces in the moon. You could see, like, sort of images there. Uh, so it, it just made a lot of sense to use the moon. Um, even so, uh, in the 18th century, we do see the first stories of, um, of aliens coming from other planets, from Mercury, for example, um, places like that. Uh, I do mention um, the case of a, of a friar, uh, Manuel Antonio de Rivas, uh, who in 1774 uh, wrote an amazing uh, fictional story about people visiting the moon and about space travel and, and the moon exploding and all kinds of things happening like that. And it seems totally out of place, out of time. Uh, so you can see how people are beginning to to, to speculate about, about life on other planets. And then when you get to 1804, which is just a few years later, uh, you get to the first story about um, a, a landing uh, in, in the United States uh, next to uh, Niagara Falls, which is pretty amazing, too. It's written in Spanish. But um, it was about extraterrestrials who'd who'd come who'd come from the moon. I mean, I, I came across that. It, I found that it it wasn't available in any language apart from Spanish. And I spoke to a lot of Spanish people too, and they'd never ever heard of it. So, <laughs> to 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 date, the first ever story about aliens in North America to to the year 1804. Uh, I thought that was um, a nice little victory there. 
And um, after that, we have uh, Washington uh, Irving, for example, in 1809. He again talks about um, the invasion of the Earth uh, by the moon. Uh, but then uh, the French, French authors were started talking about uh, Mars, uh, Venus, uh, Mercury, and and then you get to mid nineteenth century and the um, uh, stories about meteorites containing containing people containing dead people and it it's a, then then there was this massive explosion of, of stories so yeah sort of mid mid eighteenth century beginning of the 19th century is when you start finding science fiction that we can identify as such. And then if you go back a couple of centuries earlier, you'll get a lot of people talking about the moon and talking about people from the moon. But it's what they call proto-science fiction. It's not exactly science. It's more fantasy. Yeah. With whatever they would, we would call science now sort of mixed in uh, almost mm-hmm. as uh, uh, <laughs> because they had to describe things. So they, they would use the, the technology of the time to describe these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I really didn't think about this when you were when I was reading the book, but it, the, the, these ideas about um, about people on the moon come from both, uh, you know, the, the the physical limitations of what people could see, and two, mm-hmm. and maybe more importantly, just the philosophical ideas of what they could see or what could exist. And so, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, inclu- Apart from the fact that, that nobody knew where the moon was, in the sense that no one could tell, I mean, nobody, apart from scholars and astronomers, nobody was really sure how far the moon was from the Earth, mm-hmm. which is why there were a lot of stories about cyclones and, and whirlwinds taking balloons up to, to the moon, or, or boats even from the sea, because there was just no way to know how far the moon was. It looked like uh, a closer neighbor than than what it is. Yeah, I as i'm as you describe that i think about that one of the stories in the book was about uh, a fictional story i think about um uh i think there were people coming from the moon it was two pilots and they had crashed or they were mm-hmm. stranded what story mm-hmm. was that well that's the the last chapter i imagine um, oh, okay that's that's the 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 spanish story um the thing is here in here in spain there's there's very oh, little yeah. um, um science fiction uh-huh and uh, but it's interesting that in the 19th century uh, there was indeed more science fiction than, than, than there is today these days people watch a lot of uh, netflix shows or they might read comics and so on uh, but there hasn't really been much uh, science fiction uh, created in 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 spanish uh for about a about a hundred years, but um, in in eighteen in eighteen eighty, um, we have there the, uh, Spain's minister for the navy, um, a guy called uh, Segismundo Bermejo y Marello, uh, who who wrote a whole novel about a UFO crash with uh, two dead bodies, hieroglyphics, and a lot of other things. Yeah, everything so, was there. Uh, yeah, all of the all of the puzzle pieces were there. All of the the main elements that you might find in a in a modern crash story. You know, um, my what I say in the book and what, and what my opinion is, is that if you want to believe that UFO crashes uh, have really happened, and I'm not saying they, they, they haven't, mm-hmm. you should be a little bit aware, aware of what people were imagining 100 years ago or even more, because you need to sort of be, be, be wary of the of of the mental traps you might fall into. And, you know, it, 
for, for some reason, it's as if they're they're like archetypes. People seem to invent the same kinds of stories as uh, as existed a hundred years ago. And you need to, I think, I think anyone who takes who takes UFOs seriously should know a little bit about where it all comes from, and that mm-hmm. includes uh, UFO crashes, abductions, and everything else. Yeah, I think the story was called Doctor Juan Perez, or or if you're a Catalan, Perez. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, and yeah, uh, a, yeah, and how, and the other thing I'm thinking when you say this is the first thing somebody would say. Well, well, they didn't know that story, so how could they borrow from it? But you've kind of explained that it's like, well, if somebody can make it up, and they can do it in in various places at various times. I mean, that's not the only novel or story that had those kind of uh, um, elements in it. It's the most perfect one that matches the Roswell incident. But if it has those elements. It means that people can either make up, confabulate, or add to whatever they're seeing because that's how people think, or that's yeah. you know that's how they're primed to think in a, in a Western context. I think that's it. I mean, um, experiments have been done on uh, on children, for example, and people who have no idea of UFOs at all to invent their own UFO story, invent their own UFO crash story, invent their own abduction story, which later they compare to um, to, to, to real accounts or, or accounts that uh, John Mack and, uh, yeah, and Jacobs real, and Hopkins yeah. would have. Exactly. And they do find they do find similarities. They also, they also find differences too, but, but they do find um, plenty of similarities. So uh, my my point of view is that if you take any of any of this seriously, if you take ufology seriously, it, it's almost a responsibility you have to, to to find out how this all began, what people used to think, uh, and to what extent um, the human mind is. Uh, I mean, uh, tends to to recreate um, plots and 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 stories and and things. Uh, and the only way to know that is 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 to discover what our ancestors used to believe or what our ancestors uh, concocted at the typewriter. It's mm-hmm. just, um, I think it's just very important to, to know where these things come from. Uh, otherwise, how can, you, how can you judge what's real today? Yeah, there's a, you mentioned abductions, and I um, actually wrote a note that uh, Luis Marin Enriquez uh, from 1798 about um i think it's some kind of invasion and there's one scene she's you said people from that were abducted to uranus or uranus or whatever <laughs> you call it and there's a yeah. woman that awoke on a table with giants looking at her through microscopes mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's that's right it's, it's pretty amazing i mean that's from uh 1798 mm-hmm. and uh, luis marin uh, marin enriquez was uh, a french playwright and he wrote a novel about a giant visitor called uh, Frondiabus. In the book, I, I sort of uh, put a little drawing of Frondiabus, which which comes from the from the novel. Mm-hmm. And you can see him there with two cages. Like oh yeah, he's carrying cages. 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 That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Looks like he's getting um, on the plane with his cats or something. Yeah, that's, that's true. And <laughs> um, if, if if you notice under him, you can see a little bit of the planet, of course, because uh, this this entity was three hundred and thirty. Uh, foot tall, so uh, what what he decided to do was to to go to um, Asia, Africa, America, and Europe, and the plan was to gather a rich collection of curiosities, of, of people of every color and every instinct, and and wild animals too, 
and when he gets um, to to Uranus, he he decides to put all of the the evil, corrupt people together in a cage with the lions and tigers, and <laughs> he puts the the good-hearted people um, in a different in a different cage. It's like sort of making a zoo on on the planet Uranus, and. Um, he he feels that he's doing Earth a favor by getting rid of all these corrupt baddies and <laughs> and, and despots, and uh, they they say to him, "Well, what shall we do with the uh, with the good people in the cages? Um, what should we do when they start having children when they start procreating?" And he says, "Well, let's just send, send them the, back. send the kids back to Earth because <laughs> Earth, Earth needs them, you know." Which is a very nice little little story. But the fact is that yeah, um, ex machina, early, you know. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a very nice story about, about abduction um, in that sense, because there are plenty of, um, of stories about abduction. I mean, that's, that's going on 240 years ago. It's, uh, it, it just shows that, that we haven't really reinvented anything. And this is, again, this doesn't, um, it shows that we haven't invented anything. It, 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 it doesn't negate um, abductions. It doesn't mean that abductions uh, don't happen today. All it, all it means is that we should watch out for, um, for fake testimonies creeping in because uh, human imagination is, has this amazing ability just to reinvent the wheel or reinvent the saucer in that way. And I think that um, if you, again, if, if you want to research abductions, if you want to take that seriously, you really should know uh, who came up with the first the first stories about abduction, even if it's just to, to discard them. I mean, if you're, an, if you're an expert in any field, you've really got to know uh, the history of the field. You can't just read the newspapers and the UFO magazines. And, you know, that's, that's why I was writing it. Yeah. You did mention the crashing meteorites thing, which I did not know anything about this. This was, you know, pulling the curtain back to reveal something I didn't even know exist. But, it, it, you know, the first stories of things coming to to Earth, as far as I can tell from your book, was just meteorites crashing with either things on them, in them, preserved in them, or, you know, uh, according to that uh, Le Pais article, a meteorite that actually had an alien tomb in it. <laughs> yeah, that's that. These that's were right. fascinating. I mean, I, I, I that that's the only con, con, you know, they, they didn't think, well, they're going to come in a ship and the ship is going to be crashed. And I mean, that happens actually, but the, the plethora, the the main, you know, um, uh, the greatest part of these stories seem to be meteorites. Yeah, yeah. So um, what happened was that uh, people understood finally that that meteorites come from. Uh, outside the atmosphere, there was there was a point in time, a very long point in time, when people believed that um, they were just normal rocks, everyday rocks carried by the wind, or that they'd been hurtled out of out of volcanoes, like um, like uh, big explosions, like uh, like Pompeii would um, would send thousands of fragments into the sky and for hundreds of miles. So uh, for a very long time, people believed that meteorites uh, were just a, a natural phenomenon that happened here on Earth uh, and that um, that things that you see in the sky were not even related to meteorites at all. When you see a meteor or a comet, well, mainly a meteor, that was um, what they called exhalations, uh, the Earth's natural gases 
just just like earth earth farting. That was mm-hmm. basically what it was. Yeah. And um, when they put two and two together finally, and they said, okay, well, what we see in the sky is probably these meteorites coming down, and maybe not all of them survive um, sort of entry into uh, through um, Earth's atmosphere, and they and they burn up, and they they started realizing that they came from outside the Earth, and that and that allowed people, uh, creative writers, to start saying well hey what if that rock comes from a planet uh which uh, maybe maybe it comes from a volcano where there was a house built just next to it or even on top of it or a temple or a cemetery on that other planet and when that that volcano exploded on the moon or when that planet was uh, shattered into a million pieces because of an asteroid collision maybe pieces of technology uh came down to earth and maybe maybe that um that also means that, that other beings uh who are uh, sort of holding on to those meteorites and, and 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 chunks of rock survived when they arrive here and this sort of opened up a whole new um genre really the idea that um maybe pieces of technology have reached earth from other planets again it doesn't mean it's never happened but if you if you really want to take take ufology seriously, as I've said, you, you you need to know where where this idea originated, where it started, and how how that might have influenced us. So what you see is from about 1847 onwards, um, you, f- you start finding stories of of artifacts that have come down from the sky. Uh, sometimes uh, they look like statues, like human busts. Uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, meteorites covered in hieroglyphics uh, and as you as you progress through the century and you reach around 1880 1884 which we'll see in the next volume mm-hmm. those meteorites have mutated into spaceships so when they crash you get cogwheels scattered over the field mm-hmm. uh, levers and springs and things like that because people at that time were trying to design um, uh, dirigibles. They were trying to, des- to, to, to design airships. Airships, yeah. It was, you know, and so inventors were constantly publishing their discoveries or their new designs in the newspapers. So it seemed logical. Uh, people on other planets who are millions of years um, more advanced than us, they must have done it already. So maybe some of those objects that come crashing down contain um, technology of some kind. So you can see a progression there from from meteorites containing either dead bodies or covered in hieroglyphics all the way up to the end of the century where you get real crashes of real spaceships with, um, you know, with quite complex technology. So uh, this is something that, that most people don't know about. Absolutely. I did not. It was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was stunning and fascinating to me. And in fact, I'll probably ask you to tell stories because people like them. I certainly do. The, the Dr. Hopkins meteorite thing from 1862, when I'm reading it, it sounds like a modern account of a crashed UFO fragment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. That, is, that is a fictional account. But yeah, I mean, it, it's made yeah. up, but... But it sounds so much like a piece of a UFO, and what can we learn about it? And it's unusual, and the you know the composition of it is unusual, and all that stuff. This this antecedent, right, it's, right. it's kind of it's it's kind of it was kind of amazing all the all the uh, matches to uh, modern uh, ideas of crashed UFOs. Yeah, uh, this was a, a story that was published as true completely true and it was published in 1863 um, oh, 63 okay. in 
1863. Uh, the, the story itself is about something that happened in 1862. Okay. And the, the idea is that um, a, a large uh, meteorite explodes in the sky uh, over, over Jamaica, and three men traveling along um, a road called a 16 mile walk in, in Jamaica, this actually exists. Uh, they see the, the pieces uh, raining down and, of course, one of them is a scientist called Dr. Hopkins, an, an English um, scientist. Doesn't say what kind of scientist he was. Uh, and I think doesn't matter. <laughs> that's, no, it doesn't really. Uh, anyway, he, he runs towards one of, the, one of the, the, the chunks that have come from the sky. And he says, oh, this is great. This is a, a big piece of, of meteorite. And, and meteorites are quite rare in Jamaica. And it's true. I, yeah. I was Small I was researching target. this. and. <laughs> Exactly. That's the idea. Yeah. So uh, he takes it back to his laboratory the next day. Well, his friends sort of sit on it and guard it all night long. But um, the, the, the next day he starts to, to use alcohol, rubbing alcohol, starts to clean it up. And he finds pictures and, and writing and strange things there, like uh, strange symbols. He, he sees that there's a whole landscape uh, etched into the stone uh, with with cave entrances and arches and strange things. And you can see like uh, the sun and the planets. And he thinks, my God, this is like a, a message from, from another planet here. It's it's come from the sky and this obviously hasn't been made by, by humans because uh, he, he realizes that it it consists of a of a cement which which wasn't naturally occurring and was stronger than anything that had been invented uh, to date or anything that you could find in nature and um, he sees these weird sort of pictures of objects that look like cannons at first and they they seem to have these big wheels and he thinks well what is this you know uh, um, is this alien warfare or what's going on here and then he realizes that no these are actually creatures and he compares <laughs> them to rotifers uh, which are these little creatures that look as if they have um, a wheel uh, to, to get around on uh, so um, he, he, he reaches the conclusion that um, other planets um, are populated. They're obviously very intelligent. They're creating artificial substances. They can, and that this is actually a keystone from, um, from an arch, from one of the, the arched uh, doorways that he sees in the, etched in the rock. And so um, when, this, when this story uh, broken in, in a Belgian newspaper. Uh, it started to appear all over the world, and you could find it in Polish and Brazil. It was published in Mexico. It was published, I mean, I think in India, just so many different countries. And the fact is that it means that everyone in those countries was exposed to the idea that objects could fall from space. Artificial uh, objects, intelligently designed objects could come from, from other planets because it wasn't, it wasn't published as a, as, a, as a piece of fiction. And in fact, um, nobody ever confessed. And just a few years ago, I, I began researching this because uh, I realized it appeared in Polish newspapers of all things. Mm -hmm. and, and German. And uh, I found people on the internet in Poland saying, hey, look at this amazing story. <laughs> you know, and it's people remembered it from from 180 years before. Uh, and when I investigated it, and I found out that it, it wasn't true. Uh, I was I think I was the first person to to do that. And it's, you know, in the in the whole history of this tale. Yeah. Uh, 
but it's 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 fascinating. You have there the people, the the names, the place, the story, and even as just a collection of of of, of early science fiction. Uh, I think this this book works quite well because apart from opening up your eyes to 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 UFO realities and about where where these stories come from, uh, it 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 sort of works as um, as sort of an inspirational. Uh, collection of, of short stories from our ancestors. Um, yeah, and at the end of each chapter, you actually have examples of the things you talk about in the chapter. They're, they're the fragment section, which all these fascinating first-hand accounts that you found. Or first-hand, not first-hand yeah, accounts, right. but original sources. Yeah, because what I realized was that I needed to somehow condense what would have to be a 5,000 page uh, book into <laughs> 380, 400 pages. And I just couldn't work out how to do it for a very long time. I thought if people don't get a, a general sense that, that this was uh, an everyday thing, that, that people were talking about alien life and alien visits and UFOs and whatever, uh, like, like an everyday subject as we do today, um, mm-hmm. um, if you don't get that general sense, these chapters on their own aren't going to, to, to really work. They're not going to open people's eyes to, to, to UFO history. So I decided to put fragments from old uh, publications uh, between the chapters so you get a sense of of how wow this is this sort of became like a giant cosmic sm- uh, snowball because uh, everyone was suddenly talking about aliens and alien visitation you know all the way through the the 19th century to 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 modern times it, it just shows that captain kirk could have been invented 150 years ago it probably <laughs> was yeah i think you reference uh the prime directive a couple times in the book and how they, <laughs> right, these things yeah. are pre- prefigured by um, some of the stories that you found. Yeah. The, the other fascinating, I hate to like <laughs> uh, uh, belabor the meteorite thing, but the other one that really fascinated me that I liked was the, the Le Pais article or however you pronounce mm-hmm. it in French. That's more like mm-hmm. Spanish, but about a buried meteorite and it didn't and it was a story in a french magazine but it had supposedly taken place in colorado in that's it yeah like mid mid 19th century but a, yeah, a trapper exactly. fe- sees something go slamming into the ground and then finds this thing and then they dig into it and it's got artifacts and an amphora in it and even a little a little grave with a with a little alien in it yeah, that's that, that's right. the The idea is that uh, well, the the trapper story is a different one. In fact, it was oh, okay. practically practically at the same time. But um, this was um, about a, a rich landowner named uh, Sir Paxton, who'd um, founded a large, very large. I, I conflated rock. the stories. Sorry, I'm doing just what people in the book did. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, no, don't worry about that. It's 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 it's, it's actually sort of um, uh, interesting to see how how one story does resemble another in that way because altogether they they did fuse they sort of did, did get fused together to create um, a lot of the ufological folklore that we still see. Um, in, in any case, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's about this uh, landowner called uh, Sir Paxton who finds a large ovoid rock while he's uh, digging for oil on on James's Peak. In, in Colorado, and it's it's pretty big. It's like 85 um, yards by by 30, and it's full of cracks and things. And uh, he sends samples to a geologist called uh, Mr. Davis uh, from Pittsburgh, and they conclude that it's a, it's a meteorite, and it's extremely old too. It's um, it's uh, millions of years old. So you know that's 
something else. It's like, wow, this is millions of years, like a, a, a meteorite that's millions of years old. It's been underground all this time. Let's get it out because, uh, of course, uh, meteorites are famously valuable. And if you can get a rare rare metals from them or at least this was the idea at the time uh and sometimes people even believe they they contain diamonds and gold and everything else of course let's 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 get it out of the ground and split it up so they they take it out and um workmen start drilling into it which is quite quite difficult actually with a meteorite but they especially with the 19th century tools they they drill into it and suddenly they break through what is a crust um, and it's hollow. This object is, is actually hollow. And they say, wow, uh, this is more amazing than we imagined. Let's, let's get in there and see what happens. So you can imagine them going through the hole with, uh, with lanterns um, and they start poking about inside and they realize that it's a room. It's not simply a, a rock, it's actually a room. And they find um, a sort of metal floor too. Uh, which they try to lift and they and they can't at first because it's sort of fused to the rock. But finally they get through and they find themselves in a tomb where there's um, a mummy, um, which is a very strange creature, um, quite a short-statured one. It looks very similar to a modern grey, uh, except for, for one one feature. It has a kind of mini trunk coming from the from its forehead, and, and that's all. But um, they start to, to take out what they see, there's sort of uh, uh, vases and um, uh, other bits and pieces, uh, plaques with, with hieroglyphics on them. Mm-hmm. And they take out this um, this creature bit by bit because it's uh, extremely old. So they take out its legs and then, then the head and so on. And then they analyze it. And this was published as a, as a letter in France in, in 1864. And of course, it amazed everybody and, and no doubt inspired other people to, to come up with their own ideas and, and made people wonder if, if it was truly possible that, um, that uh, aliens were visiting the Earth or had done millions of years ago. Uh, but of course, in the end, it, it turned out to be a, a science writer from the period, um, Henry de Parville, who, who was just uh, enjoying the fact that there had been um, a meteorite fall recently called uh, Orgueil, and um, it was in a, a village called Orgueil, and mm-hmm. he, he decided to, to sort of reinterpret that, create his own story about it. But it, it was, it, it's been very influential because this story about um, a crashed object from space with a mummy, a Martian mummy inside, um, resurfaced um, in 1877 in Spanish. Everything's set in Argentina, uh, which is uh, odd because you think, and where was this newspaper for 13 years? Where was this story for 13 years? Someone must have cut it out and kept it in a in, in, in a scrapbook or something and they just reinvented the story and this caused a whole generation of ufologists to go wild in the 1970s looking for 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 the for the remains of this of this weird meteorite tomb in argentina and people are still looking for it today uh, you can still find people on the internet looking for 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 this hollow tomb this meteorite with the with the mummy in it and and of course they don't realize it came from from a french uh hoax uh, from 1864 mm-hmm. uh but it's a it's a fascinating story in that sense because you can see not only the different elements and uh, a creature that look very similar to a gray i put a i put a, a picture of that from the original 
yeah, book. It, it's in there. Because it was turned into a, a novel later on. And um, it's it's interesting because you can see a lot of elements resurfacing in later in later ufology. Uh, so plus the fact that it's millions of years old, which makes it an ancient astronaut, technically speaking. That's right, because we um, you do talk about the origins of the ancient astronaut stuff, ancient aliens, um, mm -hmm. and the probably the best example of that is the Antoine Alfred's Fall of the Sky book. Right, right, yeah, because there, there we we we're looking at. Um, I mean, this is this is entering into real scientific um, uh, speculation. This isn't even fiction. This isn't literature. These are, are real people, actual scholars. Uh, who came up with the idea that that maybe um, humans, their ancestors, uh, had come from another planet that had exploded and turned into the in, into the asteroid belt, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean you can find people talking about ancient aliens a hundred years before before von Daniken, and you can see, you can see very clearly how how this 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 idea evolved into what it is today i mean this guy um uh, de espiad his name was he he even went on to talk about pyramids easter island statues everything that you might associate with with ancient aliens today uh, appeared in the 19th century and um, again, it doesn't negate the possibility that our ancestors were visited by by aliens or whoever else um, in the past. But it does. I think it's necessary to know where the theory came from, who invented it, and and why. You know, and uh, that's why it, it sort of um, it's about 50 pages in the book. In fact, it's a very important uh, discovery, I suppose. Yeah, and you compared it to. Um w raymond drake's gods are spacemen in a couple of books i think he wrote after that which mm -hmm. and, and you have like two columns showing almost direct ideas transmitted by both books about ancient aliens and speculations about different areas of the planet or different uh, um, uh monuments etc and I, I got the feeling and i don't think you actually said this but it almost looked like Drake had seen that book had seen the the french book fall of the sky from 99 years before Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did wonder the same thing. The thing is, if you if you read Drake's books, and he, he I think he wrote about 12, 13 in the end. Uh, I, I actually spoke to him. Uh, I, I knew him ah. a little bit in the, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, uh -huh. I, I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And um, he wrote he wrote uh, letters uh, to me like every single week oh. uh, talking talk, talking about his uh, literary efforts because he'd spent over 30 years writing a novel called Night Errand and he'd never been able to publish it or when he found a publisher when they were just about to publish it that publisher went bust and so he, he was looking for another one and he also wrote plays and poetry he was a very religious man uh, on the phone. He told me that the only reason he doesn't tell people that UFOs are God's messengers uh, was that nobody would believe him. Uh, <laughs> but they would believe his other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's slightly paradoxical. But it's uh, I, 
I don't get the impression that he was copying from from uh, um, uh, the Espiard, uh, even though it was exactly 100 years earlier, which is amazing. It's it's as if on the centenary of of of, of uh, the Espiard's book, someone comes out with with practically the same ideas, but the transferred to uh, a 1960s world, you know, with uh, um, astronauts planning to visit the moon. And, and so on. Uh, I don't. I don't believe he did take it from the Espiard. I think he came up with it um, independently because he liked to cite his sources. He liked to talk about mm. where his, about, you know, about people who had had come up with these ideas before him. So, I think that he believed that he was a pioneer. But then you you realise that uh, very much of his book. Uh, is you you can find it in in a book from from the French from 100 years before very similar ideas about um, a planet that was destroyed in our in our solar system and how our ancestors had probably come from there and and cosmic wars and uh, inter intergalactic travel and and so on and so on yeah it's it's pretty weird uh, I <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think he had read that that previous book but anyone who who's interested in in ancient astronauts, um, will know about W. Raymond Drake as one of the the pioneers of the field, and really should know um, more about about the French uh, scholars who who came up with this stuff, because um, it's it's as if von Daniken ha had almost been copying um, these these old French books, and and to think that it really started in 1823 which means that next year is the 200th um, anniversary of, um, of the aliens. aliens. <laughs> you know, yeah, which is, which is a great idea. Uh, so I think it's about time people did know the, the secret and lost origins of, of that theory, you know. Yeah, so the ancient alien theorists actually have been around for 200 years. <laughs> 200 years, yeah. As, as they say on the show, ancient alien theorists, theorists believe, like, well, <laughs> why don't you find out what they really believed, uh, you know, back back before Von Daniken, who I had dinner yeah. with a few years ago, and he was he was a he was a jovial person. I had, I enjoyed actually hanging out with him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice, yeah. yeah. Basically, he I, told I just... jokes the whole time. <laughs> oh, seriously? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I only spoke to him once uh, many years ago when I was about 17, 16, and I was a member of the Ancient Astronaut Society, ah. and um, I paid some ridiculous amount of money to get uh, a copy of every single issue of Ancient Skies that had been published uh, to date, and I don't know, it was several hundred copies, I suppose, huh. and it, it cost me about 200 pounds, which was a oh, huge wow. amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and um, because, it, of course, it, 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 I had to cover postage too, mm. and, I, I, and it, it, it didn't arrive, so I called him, and I said, uh, I, I called him on, on a on a phone number that um, that was in a letter that he had sent to me when I when I was 13, 14, I sent him my own theory, my own my, my own um, ancient aliens theory, and he replied, and his number that was there, so I called him in Dusseldorf, and yeah. uh, uh, I, I said, hey, where where are my magazines? I, I paid for this stuff, and he's like, oh, I don't know, that's the, they come from Chicago, and please don't call me again on this number. So, uh, <laughs> Of course, I have. I probably had a very squeaky voice when I when I when I called him. I was only thirteen. Or, yeah. oh, I was about sixteen years old, I suppose. Yeah, but, I uh, magazines. Yeah. 
But he's, yeah, uh, he's an interesting dude. Yeah. Did you ever get your magazines? Yeah, I did. Oh, good. Yeah, I did lose them in the end, but I, I definitely got them all. Um, and uh, most most of you're just as insane them... as me about this stuff. That that's amazing. Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I would have done the same of... thing. I did practically do the same thing. <clears throat> Sending away well, from know, these things. Yeah, I just spent all my pocket money on that. I just uh, I just saved for weeks. Uh, you know, the money I got from working in my parents' shop. And, and spend it all on this. And at the end of most of the articles, uh, there's an address or, or phone number of the person who contributed the article. So I just wrote to all these people. And then I came up with the idea of doing a sponsored walk from Mexico to Peru, which I never <laughs> did. And I'm glad I, I never tried. Uh, and I, I contacted every uh, ancient alien writer um, that I could find uh, mentioned in those magazines who lived in Mexico, Nicaragua, and so yeah. on. And, and they said to me, yeah, you can come over if you really want to, but you'll probably be shot when you get to Nicaragua. Uh, so <laughs> I don't recommend it. So in the end, I didn't do it, of course, but um, it would have been fun. Yeah. yeah, most people know about the, um, you know, kind of the uh, some of the uh, alien belief systems of various uh, religious um, denominations. I mean, I guess most famously, which you discuss is the um, Mormons. And of course, there's also the Scientologists. They're famous for that, which you don't get into in the book, which thankfully you didn't get into. But well, they're, they're a little bit too recent for me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't even mentioned, but I, it, it's uh, it's present in a lot of these. Um, and then I didn't realize Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh Day Adventists even have, uh, uh, you know, extra extrasolar beings um, as part of their cosmology. Yeah, it's it's an. It's I just called it the Space Jesus chapter. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's a chapter there called the Intergalactic Messiah. Because, yeah, that's of it. Of course, um, yeah. because uh, Jesus was uh, was a problem. When, when, when finally it was admitted by the church that, that maybe the universe uh, was populated after all, and aliens did exist. Yeah, they actually changed the Aristotelian idea. That's right. I mean, what do you do with Jesus, you know? Um, yeah. you, you either say uh, he visited every planet separately and was sacrificed there for, you know, for the sins of, of, of the Martians and the Venusians and, and so on, or, or you say that um, the universe is populated with sinners, because he only ever came to the earth. Um, <laughs> or you say that uh, Jesus was a, a space traveler and went from planet to planet. So, so what I do in the book, I, I, I give the whole story about how, how that evolved and, and how that was a very important theological issue for, for, for a very long time. And it's fascinating to find uh, fathers of the, of the church and um, important theologians discussing uh, extraterrestrials and, and discussing the possibility that um, Adam and Eve had come from other planets and and maybe maybe Jesus lives on another planet and, and maybe we need to, to somehow um, pray so he comes back to Earth. And uh, yeah, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses um, are wrapped up in this and so are the Mormons. It's just um, pretty uh, interesting to, to discover that so many... Uh, uh, religions which are still popular today have aliens uh, at, the, at the heart of them because we're talking about right at the beginning of the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, you know, mm -hmm. um, with uh, Joseph Franklin uh, Rutherford and, um, and, and these people. Uh, 
it's just uh, uh, yeah, the Millerites too, actually. That that became yeah. the Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and they talk about the um, the the plates, the, the plates. Oh, sorry, how do you pronounce that? How would you pronounce it as an American? The 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 star the the meteorite shower. Pleiades. The Pleiades, right? Okay, yeah. About the Pleiades and and how they believe that um, that uh, that was how that was where God resided uh, and and Jesus Christ and uh, oh, because of astronomical um, discoveries about um, like a void of black with the brightness in the middle, and they said that must be the center of the universe that we've been looking for, the center of all gravity or something like like that. So that must be where God is. Yeah, basically, yeah, uh, and this idea, you know, was actually much older. And the, the idea was that um, Alcyon, the central uh, star of the uh, of of the um, of the Pleiades, uh, was the, the 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 window into uh, into heaven, and so therefore um, any biblical personages like like God and Jesus Christ would come through that hole um, to, to to reach the earth. And it, they they very strongly believed that, and it was um it was a very popular belief of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, until the early 1950s, when when they said that uh, no, actually we there is no scientific scientific evidence to back this up, and they just poo pooed the idea. Yeah, they actually uh, kind of made fun of it of their own history. They did in 1953. Uh-huh. Uh, totally ignoring the fact that the founders of, of the Jehovah's Witnesses had very strongly believed that their souls would end up in in the Pleiades um, when the, when they died, uh, but there we see this uh, very strong alien connection um, because this populates the universe. This is to say, there are people, whether physical or in a, or in a spiritual form, uh, living living among the stars, and they can come to this Earth again, and we will go to them at some point in the future. So the whole extraterrestrial idea there is is embodied in a in a religion and you find of course the same things with them with the mormons they had very similar ideas at a very in a very similar period and as you said the 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 seventh adventists um it's it's all the seventh day adventists it's all in the book you know and i i couldn't i couldn't find any other any other major religions that uh, that, that shared these beliefs until you get to um spirituality and spiritualism in the 19th century and then there's this huge explosion of 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 cases and and testimonies about uh, visiting aliens uh, coming to earth sometimes uh, physically sometimes uh, spiritually and of course they they drew their ideas from um Emanuel Swedenborg and that's 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 going back a lot you know a lot longer that's in the um 18th century so um these these religions uh, had aliens uh, as a a central part of, of their of their theological system. Today, of course, I mean, I've 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 spoken to to, to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses about this, and they have no idea. And it's a bit sad, really, but but they they have absolutely no idea that any of this ever existed, and and that their founders had very strong beliefs about about alien life. Well, you did say you looked at the what's the name of the alien planet in the Mormon religion, but you said you went through the the the, the phone book and at Salt Lake City, and there are about fifteen twenty businesses named after this planet. That's right. It's Kolob, K 
K-O-L-O-B. Yeah. Yeah. No one knows where the word kolob came from. Uh, but the idea, of course, is that, um, mm. the, 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 that God resides either on or near uh, kolob. Uh, I'm sure you'll have um, Mormon listeners who'll, who'll, who'll have an opinion one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But I've, I have actually spoken to, to Mormons about this. And there is slight, a slight disagreement about whether that is where God lives or, or, or whether God lives in that area somewhere. Where he has a throne <laughs> somewhere floating in space, which is fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to criticize uh, Mormon belief. Uh, if that's what you want to believe, that's, that's, that's up to you. Uh, and who knows? I can't. I can't say it's not true, either. But 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 it's it's fascinating to think that so many religions have this, you know, at their core. Uh, and of course, Mormons today. I believe there are 15 million, 15 million Mormons today, and there are millions and millions and millions of of, of people who uh, went to uh, spirituality uh, uh, in the in, in the 19th century. It was a massive movement. So what what it really means is that if you had lived in the 19th century, you would be totally surrounded by people believing in aliens, believing in alien life, believing in alien visits, and speculating about uh, how we can communicate with them. Maybe they're 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 talking to us. Maybe they're sending us messages. Uh, maybe their 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 ships are arriving here. It's just. As I, as I say, it's just like a, a whole forgotten past, which um, if you take this field seriously, you really should know something about it, you know? It is an education in itself just reading this book, and then there's two more uh, volumes to come. Uh, the, you did mention Swedenborg, and I knew about Swedenborg, and I knew about some of his channeling stuff, but I, I didn't realize how contactee like he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm reading this, and it just sounds like, 1950s contact e-channeling. It sounds exactly like it. Yeah, yeah, because... Uh, and this is from the 18th century, from the 1700s. 1758, in fact. Yeah. 1758. Um, he published a book called The Earth's in Our, so- in, in, in our Solar System. Uh, I mean, the, the full title is uh, The Earth in Our Solar System, which are called Planets and the Earth in the Starry Heavens, Their Inhabitants and Spirits and Angels, Thence uh, from things heard and seen. And he says, from things heard and seen, he's basing this on, on his own experiences. And um, sometimes he, he talks about having purely spiritual experiences, about how, how he isn't bodily transported into the sky um, to, to visit these, these um, sometimes even extrasolar um, locations. He, he talks about um, visiting planets outside the solar system. And um, other times he, he actually receives gifts, uh, physical solid objects like a book uh, from, from uh, the aliens, like uh, from, from the ones from Mercury. And in the book, what I do is I talk about the, the Mercurians quite a lot because they're very similar to, to modern-day extraterrestrials. They, they wear these tight-fitting suits. They communicate by telepathy. In a, in, a, in a period when the word telepathy uh, hadn't even been coined yet. So um, the, the parallels between uh, Swedenborg's Mercurians and, and modern aliens, it's, it's very, very surprising. Uh, uh, many of, many of uh, Swedenborg's um, ideas were then discussed at length by mediums in the 19th century, and, and that's how aliens uh, was sort, of, sort of survived until until modern times, you could say, because um, uh, mediums and, and spiritualists uh, based many of their of their ideas on on Swedenborg's book because they they saw it as a kind of guidebook. 
mm-hmm. to, to the universe. So uh, yeah, it's just like, it's just like um, a contactee, or some might even say an abdu- an abductee is remembering things wrongly. You know, it sort of depends on how you how you look at it. Yeah. One theme that runs throughout the book, and you mentioned, and I did mention it in the uh, intro here, was that uh, kind of the origins of a lot of these uh, aliens, they, they tend to be, unless they're degenerate or something, they tend to all be white and blonde. Yep. yep. But, of course, you trace that to, well, these people that were writing about it were all white people. And that at the time, they all, they, you know, the, the very core belief of everybody is, well, that's a, the, the pinnacle evolution is our, our you know, Western Europeans. Um, right, but you you, know, right. you kind of say, well, unfortunately, this runs through a lot of contactee and, and UFO literature, uh, or at least um, aliens literature, mm-hmm. and it I see it continuing pretty much up to now as well. So if anybody sees any other races, they're they're always dark skinned or hairy or both and degenerate. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, yeah. So it's it's a very interesting, a very interesting fact that. Um, in uh, 18th century um, anthropology, the the dominant idea was that the that a superior race would be blonde with blue eyes, um, very white skin, and they would look totally Nordic. Uh, they they weren't called Nordics at that point. Um, the idea of um, of, Nord- of a Nordic race comes from the year 1900, uh, but uh, for a very long period of time people accepted i mean everybody accepted the fact that uh, well, the idea that um, that that, uh, that superior humans um, look like uh, any blonde hollywood star that that you might be able to think of some kind of thor you know and this this runs all the way through 19th century ufology because every time someone has an encounter with um, a being from another planet, particularly if they're an intelligent and wise and advanced one, uh, they are blonde. They have blonde hair, they have blue eyes, and you can find that both in, in, in sightings, uh, claims, uh, stories presented as real, and, and in fiction too. And it was accepted. I mean, you can find that even, even in Adamski. For example, right. it's, this is the whole idea. Even it, it reaches to the 1950s, and this is an idea born in in the 18th century. And of course, uh, in the in the modern world, we uh, we don't um, we're not so offensive towards uh, non-whites uh, in a in a ufological context. Right. But at that time, people no, I meant were, modern like, up to you know the modern era, not 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 specifically up to right now. Although it is present right now in 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 various ways. Yeah, it's but people are away, aware of it? it, you know. So. Yeah, it's 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 really never gone away, uh, but um, I didn't know what to do with with this while I was uh, compiling the stories for the book because w- what do you do when you find so many uh, terribly offensive, uh, pretty sick um, uh, documents in the 19th century saying, well, uh, we know that extraterrestrials are white and blonde and blue-eyed. And um, that must mean that black people are the exact opposite of of that, which is an awful thing to say and totally untrue in <laughs> at every level, of course. Uh, but but the idea that um, that they could use that as an excuse to to look down on on people who are not white uh, by saying, well, you know, advanced beings, 
must be white, they must be blonde, uh, because that's just the way it is, according to all the anatomists in the world. Because at that time, that, that, well, that seemed to be the case, that every anatomist, uh, every anthropologist had reached that conclusion. And it's just, uh, it, it was quite difficult to know what to do, but in the end, I just decided to add it to the book and just say, sorry, <laughs> but this is what we're going to see. This well, is this what is, we're going this... to see. People would take, and they still do this, their ideas from how we are to uh, and port those ideas into some kind of alien world. And mm -hmm. that, that goes along with their attitudes towards other people and their philosophies and all that. They twist them slightly, but it's almost like they're using this um, another world or another universe, not another universe, but another world or another civilization mm -hmm. as a mirror of ours in kind of a more perfect way, which is, I mean, that's, right. that's, a, that's a very religious idea. I've yet to see in any of your accounts there where there's a, another planet that's, a, there's a few maybe, but where things are just so degenerate and degraded and boring and non-spiritual. Everybody seems to be on a kind of a higher level than, the, than, the, than humans at the time. Um, because yeah. they're up in the heavens too, which was another thing. It's hierarchical as well. Yeah, apart from, apart from that, of course, the idea of original sin uh, was a very strong belief. Uh, That's you right. Know, the I mean, exploding to... planet was full of sinners. <laughs> That's why it exactly. exploded. <laughs> and and they call it, you know, the evil planet. Exactly. I mean, Maldek. why would God have destroyed it? Yeah, Maldek. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, why would? Which sounds very similar to a lot of other other planets like Marduk and so on. Yeah, they, yeah. they all sound very very similar. Um, why would God have destroyed? Uh, a whole planet with all its inhabitants if if they had been good people you know and yeah. uh, that's the that's the thing i mean the the, uh, the, the there's a lot of religious um, context uh, you know to 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 all of these all of these stories which is why the 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 novel from 1880 written about um, a ufo crash in spanish it, it sort of devotes it devotes whole chapters to how, to to how that doesn't contradict the bible just in case readers are shocked yeah. by the possibility that the universe is full of other other creatures and things, they, he, he just had to make sure that um, that nobody was deeply offended by it. At the same time, the same people were deeply offending anyone who wasn't white. So yeah. the past was a very strange place to live in. Yeah. It really was. It, you know? uh, yeah, it reminds me of the John Dee's book, the the, uh, the account of uh, of. Uh, What's it called? The account, of, what, what, the channeling that he did with Edward Kelly. He spends the first entire chapter saying, I'm not trying to insult anybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but this actually happened, and this, yeah, this is the information I got. Um, yeah. Chris, I mean, it sounds you, like you're, you... you're walking around. I mean, I, I, we, don't, we don't have to go too much further. I've pretty much gone through every subject that I wanted to talk about you. In the, to, I'm just walking, walking to the train station. Oh, okay. Uh, I sort of realized what time it was. I was just going to mention the fact that um, uh, a French guy called Auguste Dufresne in 1870 um, delivered a presentation to um, a group in Paris. It was the Society of Geographers in Paris um, saying that he believed that Australia uh, had, yes. had fallen from the sky. I love uh, that story. Said, and he says, um, I think that we have... Absolutely, we have we have every right in the world to to take this land from the Aborigines. Um, it should belong to us. Why? Well, because Australia 
obviously, um, didn't, even, didn't even come from this planet. The whole continent was an asteroid that fell into the Pacific Ocean in ancient times. Uh, and that caused, of course, the, the floods and the loss of Atlantis and so on. And that explains why the, why the flowers and the animals and the people on it are so weird. Yeah, and uh, so different. And yeah. Yeah, it had to have come from another planet. If you go there, you might aliens. be tempted to think that. <laughs> so basically, this guy was saying they're aliens, man. They're aliens. Let's let's take it. Let, let's take it because it's it's it should be classified as lost property. Has anyone come to Earth claiming this lost luggage? You know, and uh, so that's what he tried to do uh, to 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 justify taking taking the land from from the Aborigines, which is, you know, it's it just 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 amazing how. You know, people were using the whole um, alien concept that was so popular throughout the throughout the 19th century um, as an excuse to either belittle or to to colonize um, foreigners, uh, take their lands, and and you know pretend. Well, you know, we we are the descendants of superior uh, space gods which was another idea at the time, the idea mm -hmm. that our ancestors had come from other planets and, and, and therefore, you know, we, we have the right to do whatever we want because we're obviously so incredibly superior. But the odd thing is, a little bit like um, with Adolf Hitler, uh, a lot of the people who, who had this point of view weren't even blonde or blue-eyed at all. Um, yeah. they, they, they believed strongly in a, in a superior race but they didn't seem to look at themselves in the mirror, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 Spanish author of the the sort of UFO crash, um, he was he was uh, very much uh, a Spaniard, dark eyes, dark hair, mm -hmm. and so on. And there he is talking about um, blonde beings being vastly superior and coming from the stars. Uh, it's it's sort of contradictory in a sense how how people could could have these two ideas at the same time uh, and, and how, how willing they were to say, well, okay, we're not, we're not totally white, we're not totally blonde, but at least we're not darker skinned. You know, that would be worse. It's just, yeah, they're, oh, they're, horrible, we're, we're going to, we're going to pass right now just so we don't have to be associated with these inferior races. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. So, I mean, I would say that anybody who's interested in, in race and the, and the origins of, Sort of racial conflict uh, and and the story of what they what they would have called scientific racism or racialism at the time. Uh, they should also know something about its its UFO roots because there's so much there's so much in it. Yeah, uh, there are so many so many people were very seriously talking about a very white Adam and Eve and uh, how people of other colors came from totally different planets. You know, they yeah. have nothing to do with Earth at all. Yeah, I've had so, uh, Stephen Finley on my show who talks about this in relationship to the uh, Nation of Islam. And not surprisingly, it's almost diametrically opposed to what we're talking about right here because of their reaction mm -hmm. to, you know, what was going on. And, you know, the, the background's like, well, if that's your belief system, we don't want to have anything to do with your belief system because look what it did. So, um, yeah. yeah, I would encourage people Absolutely. also to read uh, Stephen Finley's work. He actually just came out with a new book. Uh, it sounds fascinating, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what the, and so, if, since you're walking to the train station, um, could you uh, maybe uh, uh, preview the next volume or two and uh, when it'll be out and tell people what to expect? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but... Sure, yeah. Uh, so... 
Um, probably at the beginning of, of uh, 2023, uh, probably about around February or March, I'll publish volume two, which will gather, uh, I imagine, around 200 actual cases, claims of, of um, close encounters, uh, abductions, uh, UFO sightings, uh, UFO crashes, uh, which where you can really see how how um, ufology originated. You can really see how how all of this led to the folklore that we have today. And at the same time, of course, uh, because people were reporting, people were, were were more aware of these things and talking about this more, and nobody knew what was real and what what wasn't. Yeah, and communication time, was better too, actually. Yeah, well, at, at the same time, there were a lot of sightings that were potentially real because until the world started talking about aliens, whether, whether they based this on, on pranks or not, uh, until the, the world started talking about that, um, no one was willing to, to talk about their personal encounters with, with uh, aliens or, or UFOs. No one was really able to do that because they lived in a world in which you really didn't talk about these things, you know. And suddenly, suddenly the United States uh, was a place where you could very openly discuss alien visits, alien life, and everything else. And so you'll find in the second volume uh, witness reports uh, which might have uh, a basis in, in truth. And... Um, who knows? Uh, this is the point in time when you'll start to see how how modern reports really do sort of seem to have an echo in 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 nineteenth century ones. Mm -hmm. So I look forward to to publishing that uh, in around February or March. I would say these okay. are these are a massive amounts of information to yeah. to put together. To you try know, and winnow you know, down to a book size. The footnotes, uh, there's, there's so many footnotes in this book, but I try to to sort of cater both for um, sort of informal readers who who like these subjects but aren't very clear about what they what they think, and also for people who are you know more sort of interested in the in the scholarly origins of all of this and see all of it as as sociology or anthropology or literature, because. Mm -hmm. um, not many books or not many opportunities sort of come up in in, in 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 a lifetime to actually bring so much information together and give it to the public. So I wanted to sort of cover cover my bases in that sense and sort of give something that everyone could use, whether you're a skeptic or a believer. Yeah, I think you tread that line really well in this in the Alien Artifacts book, and um, we'll have you on when the next one comes out and the one after that, please. I'll certainly let you know. All right. Uh, I, I always let the guest. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I always let the guest pick some uh, music for the end of the show. What would you like me to put at the end of the show? Uh, I, and if I, you can't, I'll pick a silly UFO song. <laughs> oh, my God. Is that a threat? Okay. It might be. Uh, I've got about something like eight six or eight hours of ufo music just songs about flying saucers and ufos but the guest well, gets you know, to pick actually my last guest no, Cla no, no. Klaus savan wanted me to play frank zappa which is great but oh really yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's great yeah 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 whenever i whenever i hear that that name i, I think of uh, phasers turn to stunned yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh actually i'd be fascinated to hear uh, a ufo song so yeah go for it okay well i'll find one who a knows silly what it'll ufo be. song yeah 
yeah. tons of them. So I will not, uh, pick one. Not not the purple people eater. I, I, oh I no 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 no! It's not going to be something like that. I've got I've okay. I don't even I don't even think I have that song except the version okay. sung by Judy Garland. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. a live version. <laughs> interesting one. That's an interesting one. Okay, yeah, uh, I'll look forward to, to to hearing your your choice. Okay, I will give you a shout when uh, I post the show. And thank you so much again. And talk again soon. I hope. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it'll be great. I did, I did, I saw them, I really did. Little people are.